In a year that has brought such profound suffering and damage, it is difficult even to talk about the looming specter of relief and normalcy. And yet, by any measure, this narrative turn is upon us. We are on the precipice of the five-word sentence we almost dare not say. The end of the pandemic. But are we? Will the radical changes brought about by the coronavirus pandemic ever fully revert to the way things were? That's today on The Q Factor. Welcome back to The Q Factor. I'm Greg Fisher. My guest today is a remarkable thinker, author, physician, and social scientist named Nicholas Christakis. He is the founder and driving force behind the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, where he is also the co-director of the Institute of Network Science. And he is the author of an amazing new book called Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of the Coronavirus on the Way We Live. There may be no better person who can speak to our current moment and the questions that are on all of our minds. Will this pandemic ever truly end? What are the social, economic, and technological ways in which our old ideas of normal may never return again? Here's our conversation. Dr. Nicholas Christakis, welcome to The Q Factor. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. You've written several books and led several studies, all of which are fascinating. Let's start with your latest book, Apollo's Arrow. For our listeners who may not be caught up on their mythology, <laughs> can you tell us the mythological tale that gives your book its title? So the story is, this is a story at the beginning of the Iliad. And Apollo is a god of many things, like all the ancient Greek gods. He was a god of healing, but also the god of disease. And what happened at the beginning of the Iliad, which of course describes the last year of the siege of Troy, is that the, the Greeks had uh, encircled the city and were laying siege to it, but periodically they would engage in raids and sack vassal states of Troy. And uh, on one particular raid, they had sacked a city, they had killed all the men, they had enslaved all the women, and taken all the treasure back to their camp and divided it all up. And there was a maiden girl who was given as a slave, Chryseis, to Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks. And the girl's father was a priest of Apollo, and he came to ransom his daughter. He brought a great treasure and he fell on his knees and he begged for the release of his daughter. And Agamemnon not only refused, but was incredibly rude to this man and uh, smacked him and said, I will not release your daughter. He was just awful to the grieving priest. And the soldiers thought this was very ill-advised, all the assembled Greek army, that, that he should have accepted the ransom and not have abused the priest. So the priest says a prayer to Apollo and says, Apollo, if, if any of my sacrifices to you ever pleased you, hear me now punish the Greeks. And Apollo instantly grabs his great silver bow, the disease-giving bow. Many ancient religions imagine that diseases were like invisible arrows that flung by the gods that felled us. And he flies down immediately, enraged, down to the Greek camp. And then the story goes, he crouched among the ships. First, he killed the running dogs, then the horses, then the men. Nine days through the army went the arrows of the god and the funeral pyres burnt nonstop until on the 10th day, Hera, the queen of the gods, took pity on the Greeks. And then she set into motion a sequence of events, which then gives rise to the story of the Trojan War. And the reason I use this is that this great work of fiction, this canonical work in the Western tradition, begins with a plague. This way we've come to live right now, all of us, 
listening to this podcast, which feels so alien and unnatural and strange, is not. Plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. We think this is crazy that we live this way, but plagues are in the Bible. They're in the Iliad. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. They are a part of the human experience. What are some of the most important ways that this plague, the coronavirus, and this pandemic, which has been horrible, is similar to other mass outbreaks of years past, like the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 or others? What are the most important ways in your mind that, or based on your research, really, that this plague is different than the others? First of all, I'd like to draw a distinction between respiratory pandemics of the last few centuries and plagues in general, which would include things like cholera and smallpox and bubonic plague and Ebola and many other pathogens. We know quite a bit about this pathogen, and the pathogen has a number of intrinsic properties, attributes of the pathogen itself that that affect its ability to kill us, and every pathogen will have different intrinsic qualities. Now, two of the most important intrinsic qualities of a pathogen are its lethality and its infectiousness. So this pathogen has an infection fatality rate, the number of people who die out of those who are infected, between 0.5 and 0.8% of the people who are infected will die. If you get symptoms of the disease, it's about twice that. So if you get symptomatic COVID, you have a 1 to 1.6% chance of dying. And that's actually quite a significant pathogen. If you're an infectious disease doctor, that's a disease you take seriously that kills one or yeah. 1.2% of the people. It's 10 times more lethal than the flu, but it's not as bad as smallpox or cholera, okay, or Ebola, which could kill 10 or 30 times or 50 times larger fractions of people. So that's the lethality. And the infectiousness is measured by something known as the R sub zero, the basic reproduction number. That is its ability to spread. So for each case, How many new cases do you get in a non-immune, normally interacting host population? So right at the beginning of the outbreak, when the pathogen first comes to humans, each case creates how many new cases? And that number for this pathogen, for the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is about three. And that's pretty high, actually. For the influenza, the normal kind of influenza we get, the flu, that number is about 1.5. Each case barely reproduces itself, plus an extra half a case. So three is pretty big. If you take those two numbers, those two quantities, the lethality on the x-axis and the infectiousness on the y-axis, and you plot all the respiratory pandemics for the last hundred years, in the upper right, you have the 1918 pandemic, which was the worst pandemic we've had in the last hundred years. In the lower left, you might have, let's say, the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic that nobody remembers. Everyone experienced it, that's listening to this, experienced it, but nobody remembers because it was just gave you the sniffles. Right. It was very mild. In the middle of the graph, you would have the 1957 influenza pandemic, which was the second worst respiratory pandemic we've had in the last 100 years. It killed 110,000 people in 1957, which would be about 220,000 people in, in the United States today. Hmm. And COVID-19 is above that. It's between the 57 and the 1918 pandemic. So you can get a kind of a sense using these two basic numbers of what we were up against. And this particular pathogen had a number of other properties that rapidly became apparent early on that really made it bad for us. First of all, the lethality of about 1.2% was bad enough to harm us, to cause us you know, serious damage, but not bad enough that we took it seriously enough. It has a middling fatality rate, which is sneaky. It makes it harder for us to take it seriously, but it's bad enough that it harms us. 
it has this capacity for asymptomatic transmission, which smallpox does not have, which is really bad for us because all these people out there out and about spreading the disease, they don't know they have it. And so you asked at the beginning, how does it compare? Yes. So the first thing is to say, okay, that's a brief comparison to other respiratory pandemics. If you compare it to, to other more serious things like smallpox and bubonic plague, of course, it's not as bad as that. Right, because you talk, you talk about these respiratory pandemics of the last hundred years. When I think of plagues or pandemics, hundred years really is like such a small amount of time. Yeah, exactly right. If you go back further and you look at over the last you know few thousand years, there's a bit of an issue as to whether we were subject to these types of epidemics prior to our invention of agriculture and cities. You know, when we lived in the Pleistocene, when we lived as small bands of hunter-gatherers, our social organization and food sources were such that probably there were not these worldwide pandemics. But when we domesticated animals and began living with them, and these animals became sources of new pathogens to infect us, and when we invented cities and lived in high-density, large-size agglomerations... I think the age of pandemic disease was fully upon us. And certainly by the time of Rome, Rome was an <laughs> enormous metropolis. Oh, yeah. A million people. It's mind-boggling. And they live chock-a-block with their animals. And uh, we've now traced back a number of pathogens. For example, it seems likely that measles came from cattle in large cities about 2,200 or so years ago. So if you go back a few thousand years and you look at a lot of other diseases that afflicted us, and they were often worse, if you look at smallpox in Native American populations, we have many examples where whole civilizations were wiped out in the course of a few decades, or whole areas were wiped out in the course of a few months. Villages, whole villages, whole regions where everybody dies, 95% of the people die within a, you know, a few months. Uh, of course, bubonic plague conservatively killed a third of the Europeans over the multiple waves of that uh, pandemic. But in some cities in Italy, for instance, killed 50 or 80 percent of the people in the city you know, over a short period of time. So the people thought they were facing Armageddon. I remember seeing in the darkest part of COVID when we're watching on the news, these trucks that were waiting for the bot. It was really horrible. Yes, exactly. So we had a little taste of this ancient experience in 21st century New York. We have a normal capacity for handling a certain number of deaths per day. And we were, I don't know, 10, 20, 100 times that rate. And so bodies yeah. were they had to bring in freezer trucks. And people forget this. This property, this intrinsic lethality of the germ that we've discussed, it kills about 1.2% of the people that it infects. There's no God-given reason it wasn't worse. Right. This pathogen could have intrinsically had every same feature that it does, but killed 10% or 30% of the people that it infected. So, do you, in some strange warped way, were we just lucky? Well, yes. And this is the point. We are, of course, a very wealthy nation. We have a, a great stake in survival and in the world continuing. A global pandemic that killed 10 or 20 or 30 percent of the people it infected is a national security threat. Things like bubonic plague and cholera are caused by bacteria. And for bacterial pathogens, we have many antibiotics that are effective. But for viral pathogens, we have very few, if any, treatments. And so in a way, we just got lucky. We should be humble before the power of these diseases. In 2019, the Global Health Society ranked the United States as the most prepared country in the world to handle a pandemic. Now, 
a little over a year later, this seems to me like a joke. What's really breathtaking about all this is not only society's ability to forget things, but that we even forgot what, what we were forgetting. You know, I see this in finance a lot, the lessons we learn over and over again, like the same movie just keeps replaying. <laughs> Are we just destined to once again stumble into this again, where we're all going to just five years from now forget that moment? Or is this going to affect generations to come? As a species, we retain knowledge. We try to warn our descendants with our oral traditions. The problem is that if these threats occur outside of living memory of people who are alive, even though there are pockets of expertise, as you're saying, people forget. So if we have another serious pandemic within the next 30 years, I think people will remember. All of us will remember. Like, oh my goodness, better take this seriously. Look what happened the last time. But if it happens in 50 or 100 years, then I think, yes, exactly as you say, they'll make all the same damn mistakes that we have made, alas. So we get respiratory pandemics every 10 or 20 years. You know, there's respiratory pathogens, influenza, for example, that come to our species from pigs or birds, and then they evolve and adapt, and then they spread. But they're typically mild because they, they don't kill us. But as we said, every once in a while, every 50 or 100 years, we get a really serious one. Well, some people are getting concerned that because of climate change, because of our increasing encroachment on the terrain of wild animals, that there's evidence for a rise in zoonotic diseases where these diseases that are animal diseases that then mutate and then affect us. And there is increasing concern that the interpandemic interval may be shortening. And what that would mean is that Instead of having serious respiratory pandemics every 50 to 100 years, we might have them, let's say, every 20 to 50 years. And if that happens, we could be facing another pandemic within living memory. I want to touch on how this coronavirus and the recent experience we've all had and are still really having might affect people's overall risk tolerance and their sort of aversion to risk as a species. My day job is I'm a portfolio manager for my firm, Quint Capital. And, you know, I've been studying in the last couple of years, particularly small companies, entrepreneurs, people's desire to innovate. And this sort of entrepreneurial revolution that we've been in that I think we might move forward with. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this issue of risk tolerance and how this recent experience might influence people's risk-taking behavior as we move forward from here. During times of plague, there are very stereotypical responses that human societies engage in. One is that people become risk-averse during times of plague. They become more abstemious. They save their money, partly because the economies typically collapse during times of plague. Right. And so there's nowhere to spend money, but also people save money because they're afraid. You know, what if I get sick or what if I need food? Or So they conserve resources. There's a kind of a seeking of security that people have when their death is walking in the streets. Over the very long term, I don't think plagues fundamentally change our innate risk tolerance as a species, because of course we've been confronting plagues for thousands of years. But over the short term, I quite agree with you that it has pretty radical effects. So we have data I'm sure that you've looked at showing these things are, are absolutely happening. I mean, I certainly see it in terms of you know, over the last year, the savings rates, people taking less, all those things ring true for me. Yes, exactly. But eventually the plague will end. And when the plagues end, you see a reversal of many of these types of traits. And so then you see a, a boom in risk-taking behavior. We're alive, let's have a party kind of response. One of the things that serious plagues do is they are a kind of accelerator for society. So we are seeing a tremendous 
explosion of in entrepreneurship right now in many ways. You know, patent filings are up. You know, all these inventors are stuck at home, so they're inventing stuff. Technologies that were previously existing, like Zoom technology, like a drone delivery technology, like mRNA vaccine technology. These technologies existed before the plague, but boy, has the, the pandemic given them a kick. And when that pandemic finally ends, and I think we'll enter that phase in 2024, approximately, I think we're going to have a quite a boom in a number of ways, including in entrepreneurship and in risk-taking of various kinds, economic, social, and otherwise. When I think about music and entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, this potential for this boom, the Roaring Twenties 2.0, that's exciting for us to be thinking about, especially coming off all this. But I, I, I do think about these lingering effects of these events. Last year was a baby bust. There was a remarkably low birth rate following a decade of decline since the financial crisis. And we have this issue of the sort of underemployed. The, there's a, a group that I've been a part of that have created an index called the Jobs Quality Index, where we don't just look at the levels of employment, but we actually look at the quality of the people that are working, the quality of the jobs. Maybe they're working, but they're making $15 an hour, working 10 hours a week. So there's this huge unemployment picture. There was this baby bust. And then on the other side, the stock market's up 25% in the last six months. So it's, it's complicated. Do you have any thoughts on this issue of the baby bust or the, the labor pool that shows up in your data? Well, people had actually forecast both baby boom and baby bust. And I think the jury's a little still out on this. It's a little a bit of a confusing picture. On the macro, on the labor stuff, it's a bit hard to predict. Generally speaking, if you look at what happens during times of war, War kills people, so it degrades human capital and also physical capital, right? It destroys things. We waste money building bombs and bridges get blown up and factories get blown up. So there's a destruction of capital, of wealth. But plagues are different in that they kill people but don't degrade capital. You know, the, the factories, the farms, the, the mines, the gold, all of that stuff is untouched by the pathogen. What typically happens after a plague is that you have a excess capital with respect to labor, so you have a rise in real wages over like a 20-year horizon afterwards and uh, a decline in real interest rates because capital is so plentiful. The problem with this particular plague is, first of all, it's not as deadly as these other plagues. Uh, so it hasn't killed as many people. And second, it has this very unusual mortality pattern, the so-called backward L-shaped mortality, where it has spared young and working age people and primarily afflicted the elderly, who are in any case not on average, in the labor market. So as a result of this, the previous uh, models of the economic, long-term economic impact of plagues on things like interest rates and uh, labor market participation and wages may not hold in this pandemic. And, and of course, we also have the modern system of finance and government borrowing and, and spending and so on, which was generally not available in past centuries, which could contribute, I think, to, you tell me, to hyperinflation. I mean, wouldn't you guess? I think so. All of these things, the pandemic having changed a lot of things, whether it's the baby boom or bust, the market, the unemployment, the underemployed, where are these people that are 50 to 65 that have just left the labor force? We don't know where they are. Where did they go? This is another one of those things where we forget. But, you know, generally speaking, when you're growing your debt at substantially greater rates of change than your revenue and GDP, it usually doesn't end well.
you're an expert in a number of things, but certainly another area of expertise you have is in social networks. Another book you've authored, Connected, The Surprising Power of Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives. I want to talk to you about this because there's all this discussion around these future social environments or the future of work. I was a, a mentor for a not-for-profit in New York called VEI, Virtual Enterprises. And we help mentor kids that are thinking about entrepreneurial businesses. And they're a really, really great group. And I was with a small group and they were just talking and, and they were all saying, you know, like, are we going back to what it used to be? I said, we're never going back there. First of all, like that wasn't that great. Being back in an office full time, the old way we used to work, the future is going to be different and it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be a young person who can innovate and create new things in this new environment. We're, we're not going backward. We're going forward. But I am curious to hear your thoughts on this, this future of work. Are we all going back to an office? How are we going to work together, get to know one another? How will this thing shape our lives in the future as it relates to these social networks and the power of these networks? During times of plague, cities empty out. This happened during the plague of Athens in 240 BC. I mean, this is a stereotypical response of human beings to flee cities. So the city's rents are declining in San Francisco, to some extent in New York. We're seeing booming real estate markets in many suburban and rural areas as people try to buy houses, blah, blah, blah. Very typical. But the fundamental story of human beings for the last 8,000 years has been a progressive rise in urbanization. Once we invented cities, we loved them. People love cities. They're stimulating and exciting places to be. Cities will come back. So onboarding new employees into a virtual work environment is very difficult. And you can't inculcate the culture of the firm to new employees by Zoom. So absolutely, I think that is a difficult issue. And I don't know how that's going to play out. The pandemic is going to have certain effects over the short term, including the decline in the, the avoidance of cities. And then going narrowly to the issue of working from home, employers are going to see, you know, I don't have to have as much real estate and I can cut my costs by asking my workers to work from home. My workers are happy because they have more flexibility and they don't have to commute. And in fact, I might even be able to offer them lower wages because I'm not requiring as much of them. And they might be able to move to less expensive places, so my demand wages is high. They're working from home. I'm paying them less. And I think there will be, therefore, changes in business practices that will endure for at least a few years because of this. Now, whether in 10 or 20 years these are sustained is much harder for me to forecast. I don't know. But I do think that people will want to return to face-to-face -face work. I think that makes sense. I've started reading a book recently about how to adapt to this new environment. I'm you know, building a new investment business over the last two years. I've built a new team, and in the last year, it's been predominantly virtual. There's just something different. I don't, I, I don't know when we'll find out what those differences are, but maybe 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, well, that was different. We're different now. I think that trivial business trips will, in fact, fall by the wayside. Nobody will want to travel to California for an unimportant business trip from the East Coast to the West Coast, spend the money and the time for a one-hour stupid meeting now that they've seen they can do it by Zoom. Right. But for important meetings where you are transacting new business with a new business partner, you're trying to assess who they are and are they honest. I don't think you can do that by Zoom. I guess the only problem is then the, the person on the other end knows if you're Zooming, they're not that important. <laughs> well, no, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, so, okay, no, that's actually another fascinating idea, which I've been thinking about, which is there are sincere tokens of investment of time. In other words, how do you communicate to someone that you respect them or love them? This is why handwritten notes are so important, because they're not easily falsifiable. You know, 
asking your secretary to send flowers is trivial. Sitting down to compose a note in your own words and write it in your own hand sends a completely different signal. And I think that this is exactly what's going to happen with certain kinds of business meetings. Like the investment you make to come out and do the meeting face-to-face will be interpreted as earnest money. I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about the Human Nature Lab at Yale. What are you looking into these days? You know, I was reading something you worked on that shows the dynamics between humans and robots and how like a robot's social behavior can shape the rest of us that are in the room with the robot. Tell us a little more about some of the interesting things you're working on there. Well, my laboratory is called the Human Nature Lab, which is a name I like. It's a brand I like that we study human nature in general. We're interested in those parts of human nature that we express between ourselves, that is to say our social nature. So for example, earlier we were talking about risk. That is part of human nature, but risk tolerance or risk aversion is something that, for example, only an individual could experience in their own, you know, by themselves. You could decide to take a risky hike where you might die and you're all by yourself. Whereas things like love or friendship or cooperation or teaching uh, are things that require other human beings. And it's those social parts of human nature that we're focused on. So for example, think about this idea. We, we like many animals, we mate with each other. But we don't just mate with each other. We also befriend each other. We form long-term, non-reproductive unions to other members of our species. We have friends. Why do we do that? Other animals don't do this. It's very rare. And we evolve this capacity. And it's a fantastic ability that we have. And it's deeply important into everything from our businesses for the emergence of modern economies to our capacity to be a cultural animal. So my laboratory studies this type of topics. And there are five divisions in the lab. The first division is a division that uh, looks at the evolutionary biology, the genetics, and the physiology of human social interactions. You know, how do we pick our friends? What is the biology of like at first sight? We all have had this experience where some of us have had love at first sight, which is amazing. But some of us, most of us have had like at first sight, where you meet someone, you just like them right away. You trust them. Where does that come from? What's the biology of that? Second branch of the lab is we have written some software called Breadboard. And you can learn more about it if you go to breadboard.yale.edu. There's a short video there. This is software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. Hmm. Tens of thousands of people have come to our online lab and participated in our experiments where we, in a kind of godlike way, can engineer different kinds of social arrangements and do experiments with them. So, for example, how bad is it for a society to have wealth unequally distributed How does that affect the capacity of that society to generate wealth or the capacity of that society to work together and be cooperative? Does inequality really harm a society or not? Do we have an answer? Yes. And so we've done an experiment. That paper was published in the journal Nature in 2015. And we were able to generate societies where we took the fixed amount of wealth and distributed it equally or unequally and then tested how they work together, for example. Hmm. And a kind of spinoff branch of that lab, of that branch of the lab, is our social robotics division, where what we are doing is we are interested in what we call hybrid systems of humans and machines who are interacting on the same level playing field. So what we're interested in is not dyadic interaction between a human and a a bot or a robot and how to optimize that robot to influence the behavior of the human. What we're interested instead in is how the addition of forms of robotic artificial intelligence into our midst affect how we treat each other. So how are human interactions modified 
by the co-occurrence of forms of robotic artificial intelligence in our social systems. For example, if you have autonomous vehicles on the highway, many people are interested in how do we program these vehicles so that they are ideal for the perspective of the individuals within the vehicle. You know, what, what is a, a smooth ride of the vehicle, for example? It shouldn't accelerate or decelerate very much. It should anticipate highway conditions. And other people have studied, well, how should a vehicle act if it has to avoid a collision with a human? Should it spare the life of the inhabitants in the car, or should it spare the life of the pedestrians? And of course, if you're the buyer of the vehicle, kill anyone else, spare me. That's how I want the AI to be programmed. Anyway, there's a whole issue on that. But what we're interested in is a different question, which is how does the programming of the vehicle on the highway change the interaction between other cars driven by humans? So for example, let's say you uh, you have an autonomous vehicle, which from the point of view of the inhabitants, you program to have a very smooth ride and the human in the car behind it gets lulled into a false sense of security. So they're following this autonomous vehicle. This car never accelerates or decelerates. And now they're just following behind the car and they're half asleep. And then the autonomous vehicle exits. And now the human goes to a different part of the highway where they're just other human drivers and has been lulled into an inattentive state and therefore is more likely to crash into another car and kill themselves or kill someone else. Wow. So the vehicle, the autonomous vehicle has now modified the interaction style of other humans on the highway. And that's what we're interested in. So this is what my laboratory is studying. We're studying these hybrid systems of humans and machines using our breadboard and other software to evaluate. So that's the third branch of the lab. The, the fourth branch of the lab, we do field experiments in the developing world where we test uh, mathematical algorithms for identifying structurally influential people. In other words, if you only have enough money to reach five people in a village, to teach them something like about breastfeeding or vaccination or mask wearing, who do you teach so that if they adopt the practice, everyone else in the village will copy them? It's like an influencer. Yes, but we we have mathematical algorithms for identifying such people and targeting them. And these same ideas can, of course, be used to sell widgets. They can be used to foster safety practices on factory floors. They can be used to reduce absenteeism. Our focus in the lab is, of course, on improving health, but you know these ideas are of more fundamental significance. And the last branch of the lab is a kind of standard big data computational social science group where we do statistical analyses of data sets. Anyway, so we, we do everything from artificial intelligence to the microbiome to, to global health field experiments to social AI to you know all kinds of stuff. I, I'm very proud of our, our research group, as you can see. You've touched on this a little bit while we were talking, and I'm, I'm excited to ask you the same three questions that I ask all of our guests at the end of every episode. We have this tradition on the Q factor. It's called the three Qs. <laughs> so these are the three questions we ask every guest, no matter what their background or expertise. And here they are. Uh, the first one, in what field or sector do you see big data having the biggest positive impact on the world over the next 10 years? I would hope it would be in health, but I fear that the challenges in health are so great that the pace of innovation, the, the impact may not be as great as I hope. I think the, the biggest impact will be in, in autonomous vehicles, whether drones, for example, in companies like Zipline or in uh, autonomous vehicles, although I would prefer it to be in health. Yeah. The most common answer that I get when I ask that question from our guests is health. Part of it is the economics of it. Like with vehicles, 
there is an economic motivation for deploying the technology. Whereas for health, I don't think the economics are aligned. Like who will pay for better decision-making or better prognoses? It's a little fuzzier, unfortunately. The second one is, is on the flip side, which is what aspect of the world do you see as being the most threatened by big data over the next 10 years? For sure, privacy, especially in the hands of totalitarian regimes. I'm very concerned, especially outside our society. We have different laws and different traditions in our society, but uh, I think the use of facial recognition software, distributed video cameras in China and other authoritarian parts of the world, the tracking of, of financial transactions, of geolocation tags as people use their phones, the use of phone data, I think these are extremely powerful and beneficial tools when used for good purposes. But these same tools, of course, could be used to control populations, to constrain freedom, civil liberties. Some of these things are are problems in our society as well. And I think we need to be vigilant. And here, I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation is doing good work and, and many other actors are concerned about this. Last question, number three. So AI, artificial intelligence, is it our friend or our foe? Well, I think in the next 10 or 20 years, it's for sure our friend. You know, over the next thousand years, you know, I don't know if we're going to have like a Terminator Skynet (laughs) outcome. But, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years, I would say it's uh, definitely our friend. Well, Dr. Nicholas Christakis, thank you so much for being here with us. I've really enjoyed this discussion. I look forward to our continued discussions in the future. And uh, again, thank you. Greg, thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with Nicholas Christakis, head of the Human Nature Lab at Yale University and author of Apollo's Arrow, the profound and enduring impact of the coronavirus on the way we live. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a good rating or review. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of The Q Factor. I'm Greg Fisher. Thanks for listening. Greg Fisher is founder and portfolio manager of Quent Capital, a registered investment advisor. Economic and market views and forecasts stated by Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital are current as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. This presentation is not intended to be a solicitation of any kind. It is for general informational purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views of the guests that appear on the Q Factor are their own and may not reflect the views of Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital.